0: Hi, this is Christopher Bandini. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm one of the co-hosts of the New Books in Psychoanalysis Network, and today we are here with uh, with four authors of the book Psychoanalysis, Law, and Society: uh, Adrian Harris, uh, Elizabeth Allred, and Plinio Montagna, and um, and we are going to speak uh, today about their edited book. Uh, so I will get right to the introductions. Uh, Adrian Harris is the faculty and supervisor at New York University postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. She's on the faculty oh. and is a supervisor at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California. She's the editor at Psychoanalytic Dialogues and studies in gender and sexuality. In 2012, along with Lou Aaron and Jeremy Safran, she established the Sandar Forensy Center at New, New School University. With Lou Aaron, Ayal Rosmarin, and Stephen Kuchuk. She co edited the book series Relational Perspectives in Psychoanalysis, a series now with over 100 published volumes. She is an editor of the IPA e journal psychoanalysistoday.com, which is developing cross cultural communications among the five language groups in the IPA. Uh, Plinio Montana, MD, is the master in psychiatry, postgraduate in psychiatry at the Maudsley Hospital and University of London training analyst, supervisor, past president of the Brazilian Society of Psychoanalysis of Sao Paulo, chair of uh, the Committee of Psychoanalysis and Law at the IPA, and the former president, Brazilian Federation of Psychoanalysis. Uh, he is um, the co-editor of uh, Album de Familia, Casa de Psicológico, nineteen 1994, and uh, the author of Alma Magrante, Sao Paulo, Shirt, uh, 2019. Uh, And Dr. Elizabeth Allred is on the teaching faculty at Suffolk University for psychoanalysis and psychotherapy and Adelphi University's postgraduate training programs in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. She has published articles on the environmental crisis from the psychoanalytic perspective, most recently in contemporary psychoanalysis, holding the ungrievable, a psychoanalytic approach to the environmental crisis. Dr. Allred has been presenting her ideas about this issue at international psychoanalytic conferences since 2007 and she has a, psych- a clinical practice in Port Washington, New York. So welcome Adrian Elizabeth and Plinio. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yes.
1: thank you so, great.
0: Thank you great. So so, so Plinio, uh, w- can you speak first about maybe the origins of the book about how you came to uh, to, to start and kind of how to write this book?
2: To edit okay, it? I'll, I'll start then. Uh, thank you, Chris. Well, just wanna say that uh when the book was uh came to was published, I, I was the chair of the committee of psychoanalysis and law of IPA. Uh from twenty nineteen on, uh from that time on uh Adrian Harris is the chair, she's now the current chair of the committee. I mean we've worked together. Uh, In the book, uh, well, I I must say, the the book started as a a project uh, of our committee, which was created in 2014 uh, to explore the main points of convergence in the interface between psychoanalysis and law, both in theoretical and in practical aspects. Uh, we w- w- we wanted to stimulate dialogue and research between the two fields, including epistemological investigation, uh, seeing similarities and difference about uh, the nature of knowledge, uh, the subjectivity and objectivity in law practice. Uh, we wanted to discuss the her- hermetism of the language of both disciplines uh, so that we could join more together, and uh, understand each other. Uh, And the question of subjectivity in in law, uh, as in fact um, law is the the subject who is uh, in law, he he depends on his feelings in his emotional world, is not so much taken into account, uh, usually in law, And we wanted to discuss that. And we wanted to gather people from the IPA, from the International Psychoanalytic Association, that were working uh, in in fields uh, related to law, Um, like expert witnesses, forensic psychiatrists, or uh, psychologists in, in family litigations, in criminal law, and in other parts of civil law, for example, expert witnesses as uh, in, in malpractice, uh, of, uh, we wanted to there, and we found that there was a very interesting work uh, when we started to see who was working with that, for example, in India, uh, of a friend or a colleague of us, Raka Shukla who was working, with judges, and uh, in a psychoanalytic-oriented group, he discussed with the judges the possible unconscious psychological biases that could uh, influence their decisions. So the question of the unconscious uh, was something that we wanted to be discussed in Law Matters. And we wanted to connect, in general, the psychoanalysts with people in the field of law. So we started promoting workshops. Uh, we started to participate um, as a committee in psychoanalytic meetings and congresses uh, with uh, law questions uh, and a lot of inter- interdisciplinary uh, studies. Uh, started to be dealt with by people from our committee. <clears throat> we had uh, the trigger. Uh, the, the The idea of the book was triggered in um, in Boston years ago mm-hmm. uh, in an administ- administrative uh, meeting of the, the the committee, and then. Uh, two years later in Buenos Aires, and yeah. from that time on, we started to do effectively, effectively, uh, the work. I must say that Adrian was of utmost importance uh, at that time, and from that time on, uh, in all the the, the the sequence of the producing the book, doing the editing the book, uh, and and then we we started to think about what could be the the matters, the subjects, and what could be the people, uh, the persons, the colleagues that could join us and that could uh, write the book. And so we got uh, some parts. I don't know if you want me to talk about the book now or... Uh,
0: uh, I think we'll introduce Adrian. I guess I was okay. just curious as to um okay. as to as to if there was much work done in this in this field in this area before your book. Did oh, you find yeah. a lot
2: uh, yeah. mm-hmm. okay I, I can say something about that later too okay.
0: Mm-hmm. okay, good. Adrian, would you like to come in?
3: Yeah, I very much um i I think what's really um interesting about this project is that. Um, Plinio is really the person who's got a long grounding in the whole question of psychoanalysis and the law and the intersects. It's through the committee, but he's also in his training and his work, he inhabits this interdisciplinary space. My experience starting in that Boston IPA meeting was that I was absolutely new to this interdisciplinary world. I love interdisciplinary work in psychoanalysis. But this work on the law and psychoanalysis, I was really entering it for the as a beginner. So I think it's interesting that he and I edited the book. He, from a really long history of work in this area and my um, being sort of new, uh, to be thinking about these questions of the law and when Tunio talked about uh, Rekha Shukla's work, um, I, it was also one of the articles I was thinking about in preparation for this podcast because I learned so much from the book we put together. I feel very, very proud of it, but I also really know how much I learned about how psychoanalysis and the law can be really a very powerful tool for understanding many, many issues, clinical and social. Um, And that paper on the situation in India talked about how approaching the problem of prejudice and the caste structure in India through a psychoanalytic lens, thinking about the unconscious is a very revolutionary project that that he was undertaking. Um so I think that's a chapter in the book that really carries the whole project of psychoanalysis um and the law. Um so I I um I think it's sort of interesting the background, both mine and Plinio's are really very different about this project, but but I feel very, very committed to to the importance of this integration legal issues, legal theory, and, and psychoanalysis as a practice and a theory. Um, maybe I'll just say a little bit about the structure, the overstructure of the book, and, um, and then maybe we can talk about specific chapters. The, sure. The, um, the idea, there, there really are four sections to the book. We, we introduce it. But there is the first section in which Elizabeth's chapter is, is present really looks at global issues in relation to psychoanalysis and the law. So, things like climate, which could not be more relevant at this moment and is what Elizabeth has been working on for a long time. So, the question of how legal and psychoanalytic issues come into play in thinking about the climate and therefore, surely, about COVID at the moment. There are also chapters on immigration and it's the impact on refugee communities and people, um, uh, the work of the UN um, as a place where legal and psychological issues sort of coexist. So the first section is global. and then there are two sections that really look at the way in which psychological, psychoanalytic and legal issues affect women. And um, people of diversity. Um, and then in a third section, it looks at the penetration of the law into private life, family life, um, and how law and psychoanalysis can be, must be integrated in thinking about that penetration. And then the fourth section backs off again and looks at more the sort of philosophic and theoretical and legal issues um, that affect the law, you know, sort of legal theory and social theory. So things like, as Plinio said, um, the question of the informed witness. Um, So I think um, we think of it as quite a a good broad um, survey, but also it's something that I think new people coming new to this area will just find themselves very, very, engrossed in a huge range of different issues at many different levels so i I feel I literally I feel I learned a lot doing this book um, and I I think it has a real role to play particularly at this moment um, so
0: yeah that, that that was my impression of the book was how far ranging uh it, it is. It just it just covers so much. And I think, you know, maybe we might, you know, somebody might approach it with some preconceptions that it's, uh, you know, like forensic uh, psychiatry or something like that, or just about being in the courtroom. And, and this book is not that at all. It, it covers aspects of that, but it also goes far beyond that. So I found that very, very compelling. Uh, and uh, I mean, the attempts to integrate uh, psychoanalysis in all these different areas was is very interesting. Um, you know, maybe, maybe the other thing to, to maybe to start to speak about the chapters at this point, should we go to Elizabeth and you can, we can start and go there. So Elizabeth, please tell us about the chapter that you wrote.
1: Well, thank you. Um, I wrote this chapter because I have had for many years, a very strong interest in applying our psychoanalytic understanding to what's happening in our environment. And um, the idea of thinking about this from a legal perspective was, was interesting to me. Um, I have a colleague who is working with the uh, defendants on the suit, Our Children's Trust, which is this suit that I wrote about in my chapter about, um, uh, I believe it's 20 defendants who are all minors, uh, with the addition of uh, Dr. Hansen, who's a climate scientist, we're trying to uh, push for their legal rights to a livable environment in their future. And it seems almost ridiculous <laughs> that children would need to put a legal case for this in front of our Supreme Court. But um, when I when I think about my colleague, a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Lise Van Sestren who is working with them and formulating their mental health defense, uh, I'm really encouraged that we're trying to bring a mental health perspective to um, children's rights and their environmental rights. Mm -hmm. So I started my chapter talking a little bit about uh, greed and secrecy and competitive strivings, which are, Kind of common territory for analysts to uh, be traversing, Uh, and and turning them, turning those uh, you know processes more in terms of our environmental relationship, and trying to understand how these things can be playing out in uh, what's usually background, but with our current environmental crisis, is is more and more becoming foreground. Um, And, uh, you know, if we think about the tragedy of the commons, it's a concept that I talked some about. Um, We are sharing our common resources with individuals around the globe. And if if there are a few actors in this process who take more than their share, then it really affects all of us. And the gains go to those taking more than their share. So... Mm -hmm um it's it's kind of easy to understand why we've gotten into this predicament if we have an economy based on exploitation of the environment or at least partially based on that uh we're going to have people who are are trying to you know amass more resources and um you know we know from psychoanalysis that we have a strong instinct for survival and for the furthering of our own kin and um so we're in this very, very difficult situation right now where uh, legal regulations are not um, adequate to protect uh, our species as you know a, a common species that want to thrive in the future. Um, I think there are many ways to, to look at how we've ignored this as, as an analytic uh, community in terms of, um, you know, we've started from an intrapsychic stance with Freud and moved more to an interpersonal stance, a dyadic stance that values mutuality. And I think we've even, you know, come to a place where definitions of self are so fluid that we it doesn't end at our skin. We're in relationships that are deeply intersubjective. Mm-hmm. And we most of us have not looked beyond that to, you know, the ecosystem that we are embedded in, and I think currently we're in a we're in a crisis. You know, our COVID nineteen crisis is um, is deeply embedded in the environmental crisis, and um, you know, if you if you look at the science or or talk to people who are looking at the etiology of this crisis. It has to do a lot with deforestation and are pushing into wildlife environments that we hadn't typically pushed into, combined with a lot of international trade and travel, and um, so we're we're living through a um, you know two crises at once, and uh, I think psychoanalysis can look at our dissociation, our enactment as factors that are at play in our environmental relationship. Um, I think if we look at what happened when analytic uh, theory came to the U.S., uh, you know, after the Holocaust or during the Holocaust, and think about how much the analysts had to give up, who had to emigrate and had to focus more on theory, and, and there was a lot of trauma about lost lands. And I think, you know, we didn't uh, embrace Jungian theory here in the U.S. as much, partly because of that tragedy over there. And, and although Jung was very embedded in the non-human world in his thinking, and uh, he traveled to live with indigenous peoples in Africa, he came here to the U.S. and stayed at Taos Pueblo in New Mexico. And really wanted to understand a broader perspective rather than um, focusing our theory on an intrapsychic process. Um, so there, there was a beginning, but uh, it wasn't really followed up by uh, anyone here in the US until Harold Searles um, started to write about this. In 1960, he wrote his you know, text, The Non Human Environment where he said that we are so deeply embedded psychologically in our relationship with the non-human that we often don't see it and we want to deny it. We're afraid of it. We're afraid of our dependence on it. And um, he further developed his thoughts in 1972 in his paper, uh, Unconscious Processes in Relation to the Environmental Crisis. Now, many people who are studying psychoanalysis as, as newcomers may not realize if you're younger that there was this whole environmental crisis and the awareness of it in 1970 and 72. Uh, it simply wasn't being written about by the analytic community in 70 and 72 and 82 and 92. Um, I, I will never forget, um, I was in a reading group with Lou Aaron for many, many years. And uh, about a year before he passed, he was talking about uh, Harold Searles and his study of the environment. And and Lou said, you know, what if 20 years from now, uh, the analytic community looks back and realizes that the movement we missed uh, after we missed the civil rights, after we missed the feminist movement, the movement we missed this time was the environment, mm-hmm. and and I I think he's right. Um, I think we have uh, we've approached this. Our theories have been, uh, as Susan Kasouf, who's a who's a, who's a brilliant new analyst just coming out of her training, um, she calls it an an environmental stance that the analytic community has had um, for many reasons. Even though she found a paper uh, uh, detailing Freud's um, uh, study of the impact of the Ice Age on uh, our, our psychic development. And it, uh, apparently there was some conversation between Freud and other analysts at the time about uh, was the Ice Age a factor in the development of a latency period in human uh, sexuality and human psychology because of the period of cold. Uh, that people had to be indoors and did not have the energy for anything other than survival during the ice age. So, so Freud himself was thinking about climate, uh, not the way we think about climate. But um, it's it's encouraging that back in the founding of our discipline, there was maybe a broader uh, look at environmental factors, and um, that now we're catching up, which is you know better late than never, but. Um, I think that many of our theories, which are really excellent theories, can be broadened to uh, embrace a larger uh, view of what we have seen as our psychological world. Um, I think if we think of uh, enlarging circles around ourselves, we have the interpsychic and intersubjective and cultural cultural school, but the culture is embedded in the ecosystem so it's it's not a huge leap to to look at it this way. Um, if we can imagine aspects of ourselves existing in songs, existing in religious rituals, then maybe we can imagine aspects of ourselves existing in um, our garden and uh, in in our relationship to our pet and a sunset. Um, so, in terms of legal things here, I I think it's important for maybe institutes to begin to get involved in um, calling out what our current problem is in terms of a climate emergency, uh, defining it in a way that we can expect that legal actions might be taken or encouraged. Um, Steffi Bednarik in in London has suggested that the analytic institutes there uh, declare a climate emergency and offer uh, courses in all the training institutes on our relationship to the non-human and the history we have of that. And there there are some very good papers being written about this. Uh, Susan Bodner was one of the early analysts writing about this in 2007. So I think... Uh, there's a lot to be learned, and and a lot about this that can deepen our uh, and, and enrich our lives if we if we um, sort of shift our perspective to become larger than maybe what we've normally been used to. Um, I think I think I'll stop for now, and I'll wait to hear from others.
0: Adrian, you'd like to add something?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you, Elizabeth. It's really um, very—it's I mean, so timely. It is so contemporary um, in in this moment. Um, I wanted uh, a couple things. One, I I think that one of the people Freud talked to about this question was probably Ferenczi, because in his in Ferenczi's book Thalassa, he's talking a lot about the sort of archaic um, environmental. Ecological underpinnings of psyche, um, which is sort of this odd book he wrote uh, in the middle of the First World War. But the question I actually wanted to ask you about the status of that lawsuit, the Our Children's Trust lawsuit, because when you wrote the chapter, I began to follow this in sort of on Google. And I, I wonder just could you bring us up to date on what's the status of that lawsuit? I think. There was some hiatus in its presentation at the Supreme Court, but perhaps, you know, something more up to date.
1: Well, I know that it's on hold. I don't know the details of that right now. Um, I wish I did know where it's going, but um, I I can't bring us up to date any more than I know that they got as far as it went to the Supreme Court to be heard. And now it's on hold. So they're all waiting for some, you know, I almost hope that it waits (laughs) till the next election because I think we might actually have more success with that being heard in front of a Supreme Court if we had a different, um, you know, federal focus than we do now.
0: Thanks. Great. Thank you. I think it's been an ongoing issue. I believe Donna Orange also has written about how to bring in, environmental issues, ecological issues. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how early Searles got to this too. It's and and also his how he tied it into Oedipal Conflict. I thought it was a um yeah. I'm familiar with that article. So I I am glad you mentioned that as well. Mm-hmm.
3: Joe Dodds is another um sorry, Joe, Joe Dodds is another interesting figure who's writing about what he's calling eco psychoanalysis.
1: Yes, I think he's a great person. I I yeah. Took a, a reading group from him just recently, and he's really tying together so many wide-ranging aspects of theory that uh, he's really uh, expert at this. I'd recommend his book too.
0: Great, th- thanks so much. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna move on now, and uh, and we are joined by uh, by Laura. Laura Orsi as well. Uh, so she's made it. Laura, can you hear me?
4: Yes, yes, I can hear yes. you. Yes, <laughs> okay, you I'm gonna.
0: Great. I'm glad you you could join us. I'm going to read uh, your introduction and then maybe you can talk about your chapter a little bit. Is that okay with everyone? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Thank good.
4: you. Thank you very much.
0: Yes. So we're joined by with by Laura Orsi, and she is um she is a psychoanalyst at the American at the APA Association of Psychoanalytica Argentina. She's a full member of the International Psychoanalytic Association, the IPA, and the coordinator of a social media commission in the APA. Uh, she has participated in several courses in gender leadership, empowerment, and social participation, and she's the co-author of Psychoanalysis and Society, uh, and compiler and co-author of Psychoanalysis and Society: New Paradigms in the Social, um, which is Duncan, two thousand seventeen. So, so I'm glad you're able to join us, Laura, and uh, please tell us about your chapter on a uh, uh, Yes, I want to do tell you about violence and femicide
4: in the media, networks, and their impact. Uh, violence against women, in particular its most serious form, femicide, responds to many factors, such a, a social construction and the symbolic violence that exists around what it means to be a man and to be a woman in different societies. Mass media have a fundamental role in this construction, because of the content, the language, and narratives that they use, as well for the consumption by the audiences. What effects, if if any, can be covered and spread in cases of murder or women among victims and criminals? What role can or must journalists and media play in violence against women? Women of homicides have gained most social and media attention in recent decades. We, we see this in now in the pandemic. There's been uh, many homicides because of the isolation that the women have, and they are near the murderers, no, or their family, no? Yeah. Although there is more information on the serious problem of gender violence and the growing number of femicides is covered as never before by the media, the number of cases does not decrease. On the contrary, it increases alarmingly. Many women have used Twitter and Facebook to organize and speak publicly about gender violence. The big virtual exchange transcended the networks and the media and took manifestation in the streets. The march called the Ni Una Una Menos, which is in Latin America and Europe also, uh, was replicated in other places. Uh, Well, uh, I think this is a uh, very important. Uh, I won't tell you the data now because it changes every year. It uh, they murder one uh, woman each 30 hours, but is uh, that is increasing now? No, in the pandemic, it's uh, it had already. 26 femicides here in Argentina. Um, another thing that uh, is important, that crimes are increasingly violent and women are still being killed despite many acts of violence being reported. The situation in relation to the assistance of women in the same there are complaints, but what protection do women receive after the reports? are the precautionary measures fulfilled after reporting the women and the children are exposed uh, well I think uh, to begin, I think this is uh, enough we can continue later of uh, uh, if you want? I can comment about what worries me. It's about the uh, effect this produces. The effect copycat. When a woman is murdered uh, in some way, uh, the, you see the the, the weak it, it, it succeeds. Many of uh, other women are. Uh, they killed in the same way, so we have to prevent this. And one way to prevent is to be conscious about what is happening.
0: And you also you worked in prisons with uh, with women, or are you... no,
4: that's uh, no, uh, that's Alicia, one of my colleagues in Argentina. Yes, Mm -hmm. I work. I in in the book, I haven't written about that, but I I told my colleagues in psychoanalysis and law I work uh, preventing the burnout of uh, with lawyers uh, who go to prison doing mediation. I have uh, published uh, about this article and it is very useful. I was uh, doing some spelling groups, uh, do you know Michael Ballant used um, oh. this method, this, uh, method. and uh, we have uh, these sessions, we've been doing that for four, five years now, and this uh, has been uh, very useful for this woman to prevent uh, violence in prisons. Oh.
0: Thank you. Um, well, thank, thanks so much. I'm so glad you, you could you could jump in and join us. of. Uh, uh, oh, we-
4: yes. It was very difficult for me, <laughs> although I had the Chrome, as you said, but I don't know what happens with technology it it,
0: it it happens <laughs> so <laughs> yes. so yeah so
4: thank, um, you, thank thank you to you all i'm very sorry to be late that's okay oh, please I stay can. please stay
0: on for the rest of the discussion so um who would like to go next plinio would you like to speak about your chapters
2: yes i can i can do that uh well uh i have written two chapters one of them jointly with uh, luisa Vicente who who's a colleague from lisbon Portugal, and the area, the part uh, related to family law. Family law is the area where uh, psychoanalysts and law professionals more often have a practical help and a practical interconnection and intersection, uh, including the presence of many times of psychoanalysts assisting processes. Uh, in audiences also uh, usually in issues of litigation family litigation uh, it can they can also assist lawyers in in civil in matters of civil capacities but usually in family litigation uh, in divorce mainly so uh, the the the, the Lawyers themselves, uh, the family lawyers say that they must be very good listeners. That's the first link with psychoanalysis. And many times, a personal experience of, say, of lawyers with psychoanalysis in and in a personal psychoanalysis uh, is very helpful for, because that's the hallmark of psychoanalysis uh, a good listening. With it. Oh, well, in this part uh, of the book, we have chapters about uh, parental alienation, uh, social effective parenting, uh, law and psychoanalysis, in the processes of uh, abo- uh, adoption, and the psychopathologies of uh, litigious divorce. I'm I'm talking I'm going to talk a bit about how my chapter on Parental alienation, and if you wish... Yes, please. Later yes. I'll talk about uh, socio-affective parenting. Well, uh, that is not... it. Uh, parental alienation is not restricted to the situations of divorce, but it's usually dealt with in practice, in, in law courts, and uh, psychoanalysts is brought to, interve- to intervene uh, in when the divorce is uh, litig- uh, litigious divorce and um, the custody of children uh, is on the spot. Well, this term, the, the parental alienation, was brought to psycho-juridical world by the American psychiatrist Richard Gardner in the 1980s after observing children uh, who had been... Who had a good relationship with a parent before the divorce, and uh, after the divorce they started mistreat, uh, to mistreat, uh, to to uh, to change the relation to a very bad one, to uh, lie, to to do uh, to deny the presence many times of that that parent. Uh, <coughs> they started to have a very distorted perception of the parent, uh, of the alienated parent. Uh, and this distorted perception was similar to the other partner's perception of the, the alienated one. So uh, it was a sort, of, a sort of brainwashing by one of the parents towards uh, the other. Uh, in relation to the child uh well, this came into came to the fore in, in the practice of litigious divorces uh, in law uh when the amount of divorce increased a lot uh and related to the the notion of the best interest of the child uh being important and substituting the idea that mother was always the person who was going to, who had the best uh, equipment and the best conditions to, uh, to have the custody of the child. Uh, when this question was posed was, uh, was on the table, <laughs> uh, fathers uh, started to to sue. Uh, to To such uh, processes uh, in order to keep the the custody because it not it was not anymore uh, uh, automatically supposed that the mother would be the best one to to have the, the baby the child uh, so so one of the resources that mothers had was to alienate the child to make the child uh, want to be with herself and deny the presence of the father. And this is a very common uh, instance in our practice uh, as expert witnesses, being as a psychologist, a psychoanalyst, a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst. And so in psychoanalysis is a very important uh, matter to to, to deal with that because it's absolutely subjective. Uh, there is a question of, uh, uh, of some psychopathology of the mothers but uh, usually the, uh, it's worth to considering other elements involved. Uh, the overprotection of the child uh, which relates to factors of insecurity, low self-esteem, uh, the impossibility of mourning uh, the separation, also. Uh, we have to keep in mind these uh, this questions. Uh, sadistic and psychotic elements of the alienator's mind. Um, and uh, you spoke about, some, uh, Elizabeth mentioned Harold Searles. He has a very, uh, very well-known work, the effort to drive the other person crazy. Uh, A very uh, well-known paper, And he... Actually, this is one thing that happens uh, in this uh, parental alienation uh, syndrome. Um, The mother trying to... Through the alienation, she may uh, drive either the child or the father uh, crazy. Uh, this can happen also. Parental alienation can happen uh, also. Uh, not only is a mother's question, can be the other way around. The father can be the alienator, but usually the mother is uh, There are the, the projective, what we call projective identifications, Usually, seal the closeness of couples. Um, couples start to be alike. They they seem alike. Sometimes, even physically, they started to to look like one each other. The sort of twinning operation presents itself as an under an, uh, underlying destructive assault. When the uh, when the couple breaks up. Uh, This narcissistic skin, which is constructed, is broken. So uh, this may uh, trigger aggression, very strong aggression
0: behaviors.
2: Well, jealousy, of course, which may be associated with oral possessiveness and the desire to own the partner, the ex-partner, The wish to dominate, uh, domination and complete control over the love object may play a role. Envy, dependence, even a financial one, which is very important, uh, and the question of devaluation of women by men, which is sometimes catastrophic, may account for distance uh, and abandonment. Well, these elements are, are pointed and discussed in the chapter, and uh, this is the main ground uh, of the chapter. That's what uh, things that we discussed there.
0: Yes, I, I found it very, very interesting. I think and very clinically useful. A lot of the things that you're mentioning, uh, especially working with with couples and attempts for one to dominate the other or to uh, to gaslight the other. So, so I definitely found that chapter very useful. Um, we are uh, coming down to the last few minutes. So I, so it's been, it's been so interesting to hear from everybody. Uh, does anyone want to speak to anything else for the last couple of minutes we have in terms of, um, in terms of their chapters or anything we haven't covered that you want, you want the listeners to know about?
3: Can I just take a minute to, to say, because it very much follows on Plinio's, um, discussion that, um, Katie Gentili and I wrote about um, the sort of intersect of the law and psychoanalysis in boundary violations, um, and we talked a little bit about the hashtag Me Too movement, and I think that links to what Laura has written about. And one of the um, ideas we ended up with as you try to think across legal questions and psychoanalytic and psychological questions is what kind of... Um, legal forms will help. And um, Katie, who's Gentile, who teaches at John Jay College in, in, um, in New York City, is very much a proponent of, of, of restorative justice, of a, a form of legal uh, resolution that doesn't so much stress punishment as working through as some kind of keeping the person or the or the phenomena within the community and working through something, and I think in many of the both the hashtag Me Too phenomena and the um and and um uh, boundary violations, there's sort of exile and punishment and and execution rather than an attempt to kind of work something through at the level of the community. So I think that. That sort of, I think what we were doing is very much in line with the chapters that Genio and Laura um,
0: uh, have worked on. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think the an interesting thing maybe to to finish with is is uh, have you been able to think of ways that to um, uh, employ these in clinical situations? Are there are there newer ways or ways you'd like to kind of tell the listener about? It? how it impacts maybe like a a clinical example of introducing some of these topics into, you know, clinical work that I think someone had mentioned or, you know, usually been interpsychic and has have been moving towards intersubjective.
3: I don't know if I can quite do that. I, I do think that that one of the things that Plinio and Laura raise is the question of how collaborative could the legal system And a psychoanalytic system become in terms of clinical holding, and some of that happens in mediation. But there's perhaps new forms rather than just the clinical or the legal. But how do they come to intersect?
0: Well, well, thank you, thank you very much. This is this has been great. It's a it's not easy to do this with a lot of people. Oh yeah, and and to speak to everyone. But but, uh, uh, but we, 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 um,
2: we must say that there are people in the book. Uh, for many, many countries. <laughs> for yes, almost, from it's, inter- it's ten, international. Ten, ten, Let's not yeah, forget it's that it's ten countries, in fact. Uh, yeah. from yes, many, most, almost all continents. It's a it was a huge work. <laughs> it was yes, very, it was a huge
0: undertaking it was very and, nice, and worth good one. to work on
2: it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I,
0: it, it's really great to hear from everybody. Um, so we've been talking today to, uh, to Adrian Harris, to Elizabeth Ollered, uh, Plinio Montagna, and uh, Laura Orsi about their book, uh, Psychoanalysis, Law and Society. And uh, that is available through the New Books in Psychoanalysis Network. Uh, that's uh, published by Rutledge. You can get it on Amazon. Um, and so I just wanted to thank everybody. I want everyone to, of course, uh, as we we're saying, to stay well in the present situation. And uh, and I wanna thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Um, so this is, thank you. Yes, thank thanks. You. This has been thank
4: you. Chris, Christopher. Thank you very much. Thank you very
0: much. Yeah, this has been Christopher Bandini for New Books and Psychoanalysis. Um, so thanks again for joining us.